Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where we share stories and tips to help you run a better farming business and create your very own freedom farm. If you're looking to work smarter and not harder in your farm business, welcome, you're in the right place. G'day guys, I hope this finds you incredibly well. It amazes me that this podcast gets listened to by thousands of, a farm, of farmers across Australia. And I'm not surprised, but I'm always amazed that, you know, the diversity of the reality of our listeners. You know, we've got people up in the Northern Territory who are having contracts torn up um, because of the FMD scare at the moment. We've got people in Southeast that have crops underwater um, for incredible rain and yet still you know across the flinders and to the west perhaps there's still some people having some really dry seasons there are people dealing with flood recovery um and we're thinking of you and then i speak to kevin the founder and ceo to blaze aid and um yeah they, they are still helping people with fire and flood recovery so just amazing to think of the diversity of realities that we are experiencing across Australia um, at present. I guess it's a little bit with that in mind, and it's on the back of my podcast, um, one, episode 102 with Terry Tran, where he gave us a global outlook on the investment market, that it gives me great pleasure in this podcast to introduce Simon Kustenmarker to you. We had Simon speak at one of our clients conferences, our deep dives, um, over 300 farmers in the room. And Simon, without question, was one of the most compelling and entertaining speakers and insightful professionals that I've ever, ever met. Um, he is an absolute superstar and it just gives me great pleasure to connect with Simon and um, for him to share with you what he shared with us around global and local trends, um, demographic, political, economic, um, for the food and fibre sector. But just to formally introduce Simon to you, Simon Kustenmarker is a director and co-founder of the Demographic Group based in Melbourne, Australia. Simon holds degrees in geography from leading universities in Berlin and Melbourne and worked for several years as a, a business consultant with KPMG Australia. In 2017, Simon, with Bernard Salt, who many of you may know, co-founded the Demographics Group. The group provides specialist advice on demographic, consumer, and social trends for business. Simon has presented to numerous corporate and industry audiences across Australia and overseas on demographic trends, consumer insights, and cultural change in Australia. Um, I've known Bernard Salt for some time, and I've really enjoyed watching his presentations over the years and the insights that he provides um, to so many businesses across Australia. Simon is his partner and an absolute superstar in this space. So, Simon, welcome. It is great to have you with us. How are you? I'm excellent. Thanks for having me on. So, personal question to kick off. You live in Melbourne with your wife, Sarah, and two-and-a-half-year-old Vinny. How does um, a Melbourne winter compare to a, a German and European winter? Well, it depends on whether you are inside or outside. Um, it's the first thing that any European finds about uh, Melbourne homes in particular. They're not all that well insulated, and Aussies tend to have their houses cooler uh, inside than Europeans would. So that's a, a, a nice little change uh, to begin with. Um, but overall, of course, the winters here are incredibly mild. Uh, sure, it's raining a bit, um, which if you live in a city is annoying. It's better if you have a business where rain um, depend or helps your livelihood. Um, but overall, uh, the winters are beautifully mild. I'm really keen before we get into talking about global and, and local demographics and trends, perhaps just to touch on your background. Um, tell us a bit about your, your backstory, Simon, if you could, and how it is that you arrived into Australia and, and into, into this space that you are now so expert in. Uh, absolutely. So, um, 
Germans tend to have an absolute love of Australia because we love anything that uh, looks sunny, that looks warm. So we love Australia. I didn't have any of this. I had no, uh, you know, desires to move to Australia ever. I always wanted to move to the US and, and did so and ended up studying in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and did this for a year or a semester and then had to go back to, to my German university. And I really wanted to continue to study in English, to live on campus. That was a kind of a good lifestyle. Um, but you were only allowed to do one exchange semester. And then I realized that this uni wasn't all that tech savvy uh, back in 2006. And I knew that they had two doors to their exchange uh, office, one for the Northern Hemisphere and one for the Southern. So I figured I'll just walk into the Southern Hemisphere office because I've already been to the Northern Hemisphere and just don't tell them that I've been on exchange already. And, uh, you know, there weren't all that many English-speaking places to pick from in, in the Southern Hemisphere. So I just randomly picked Melbourne because I could score a free uh, trip here, essentially, and was meant to be here for one semester and then... Um, ran into my wife and uh, that was 15 years ago and now I'm permanently living here. There you go. How do you reflect on growing up and raising a family here with Sarah in Melbourne, Simon, compared to how life might be for you in Europe, given that so much has happened in Europe over the last 15 years? Yeah, so I, I do think um, Australia is a marvellous and really easygoing place to bring up a family. There are major issues here, house prices being the number one issue, that housing becomes um, unaffordable, which brings all kinds of other problems with it. Um, but overwhelmingly, if you look at our big cities, a city like Melbourne, 5 million people doesn't have enough problems considering the size, the sheer number of people. There will always be horrible events happening when you throw 5 million people into one little uh, spot. Um, but overall, things are going really well here. It's an easygoing country, um, a very stable economy, and I'm very, very optimistic about Australia's future. Um, so I'm, of course, a demographer, meaning I look at global and local population data for a living. Um, I'm looking at global trends and things in Australia look up. Where would you want to invest your time, your energy, your future uh, around the world? Australia is well positioned to weather all kinds of, of storms. Our business model is incredibly simple, really. We sell stuff to the world, our exports, uh, that we dig out of the ground, mining, um, or that we grow on top of the ground, agriculture. And that makes up almost all of our exports. We don't export anything else, really. Uh, and we make really good money doing so. We also import all of this. You know that all of your machinery, all of your equipment uh, that you ever use, your technology, uh, that all comes from overseas. And in a world that we are now in, where global supply chains stop moving as freely as they once, uh, as they once have, it becomes more expensive to ship stuff. It becomes more expensive to import stuff. That's the bad news for us. Anything and the cost of doing business will only go up from here on. So you need to you need to be aware of this. But overall, our business model is gets also strengthened because the commodities that we sell, our agricultural products that we sell to the world, they will only go up in price forever, really. So that is a marvelous um, setup. And if you go and follow those geopolitical um, commentators that say um, global shipping. Um, Global free trade gets slowed down, which is likely to, to happen and to last for a long time. The, um, the goods that always get primacy in terms of shipping are commodities and food or food and commodities that way around. Um, so that is actually marvelous because we get our stuff out. That's positive. Even if um, you are very pessimistic about um, what China does, will there be wars, trade wars involving China? Are they going to be the new regional um, superpower here? Um, doesn't face Australia much because Australia, uh, China needs Australia more than Australia needs China. What I mean by this is that China is by far the largest customer for anything that we produce. Um, they need us, our products, for energy and for food. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they purchase the bottom, the most essentials of life from us. We only get money from them. 
So our wealth depends a bit on them, not our livelihood. Um, so China will always be um, securing safe passage on the seas uh, from our produce to China. So our business model continues to work even if you are extremely pessimistic about um, global geopolitical um, futures. So we got this sorted. That's pretty. That's pretty good. Um, then a couple of minor challenges remain about climate change and uh, increasing um, extreme weather events in Australia. But let's say we manage around this. Um, then there's nothing holding Australia back. We will still be moving into a world where more and more jobs are knowledge-based, meaning they're done remotely on a laptop. And then people move to lifestyle cities. And across the world, where would one, people want to move to? There are only so many rich democracies out there that people are feeling drawn to. And we are one of them. And um, yeah, I can't help but uh, be optimistic um, about Australia's future. A very long-winded answer. <laughs> that's, a, that's a wonderful answer. It's really refreshing to hear. So with all that's going on for Australia, I guess my summation of what you've just said is that our, our fundamental business model is strong with its dependency on commodity exporting. Um, is there anything wrong with our business model, do you think? Uh, well, we, we, we talk a lot about the diversification of our um, of our industries. That's particularly extreme if you go to w, uh, WA, uh, where we say, oh, we want to diversify the economy. That's the right strategy. Uh, so it's Perth is a one-trick pony, really. It's a mining town. Um, and any kind of urban planner, any kind of politician should try to diversify uh, the economy. But usually you only innovate, you only change your um, your strategy if you're pressured to do so. And there will be no pressures on Perth. Uh, they'll make a killing doing mining, doing their mining stuff. That will always work. Um, I don't see any stopping of this anytime soon. So the pressure for WA to innovate, to become a new, more modern town, that won't happen. So they'll throw mining money at the town so it looks kind of nice and clean and whatever. Um, but why would industries be pressured, new industries be pressured to settle there? Um, it's That's not helping. You know, it's that's where the success of an industry is almost holding innovation back. We've seen this in many other examples. Uh, for example, construction or, or real estate property in Australia. That's an industry that has been doing incredibly well over the last five, six, seven decades. Um, so therefore, there is almost no innovation in the whole sector whatsoever. We finance homes the same way. We build homes largely the same way than we always have. Um if you go to the big cities around Australia uh, and you go to the to the urban fringe where they develop, um, you know, home and house and land packages, is this the most efficient, uh, environmentally friendly and cheapest way of building housing? Absolutely not. You can easily dream up a scenario um, where you just do very, very individualized but prefabricated homes in a factory. You could do this cheaper, faster, and you come up with a better product. Um, and we're not doing this because there is no pressure to innovate. We will increasingly see pressures for many, many industries, and agriculture isn't uh, excluded here, um, where we will be forced to innovate. What I mean by this is that as a country, the one thing that we are running out of um, increasingly are workers. So we've seen this in recent months um, that the skills shortage has been big. And the skills shortage in the short term is a very simple narrative. We are a migration nation in Australia. Usually we take in 180,000 net new migrants every year. In the first year of the pandemic, instead of taking in 180,000, we lost 90,000 people. So that's a gap of 270,000 people in just one year that we, we, we kind of lost. Of course, that then continued for another year, and that creates a skills shortage. That is true. Um, but there is also a larger truth happening here um, about the skills shortage lasting longer. What I mean by this is that globally, we are running out of workers. We are running out of working age population. So to, to you know step back one more time here is human population will start to shrink in the 2080s. So if you are 
in your 20s now, you will definitely see peak humanity. Um, but we don't, in Australia, we don't concern ourselves with the global population. We are more interested in workers. And the working age population, 18 to 65 or thereabouts, they start stagnating as soon as the 2050s. But things get even worse uh, because in Australia, we import migrants 18 to 39. That's migration age. And that population cohort starts stagnating globally speaking as soon as the 2030s. So we are running then out of workers. And to make it even more dramatic, if you only look at migrants from middle income and high income countries, that's our, our source countries, um, the, the, this population stagnates even sooner. So quite quickly, we run out of workers. But even before we run out of workers in Australia, um, the whole idea that we can endlessly attract migrants for free, even kind of treat them poorly, meaning international students that come here pay an arm and a leg for their education, and then it's incredibly complicated and expensive to uh, get citizenship. That's not smart. That's a terrible idea in an environment where you run out of workers. People might have well grown up in a world where jobs were in short supply and workers were hoping that they can secure a good job. That will, um, at the latest in the 2030s, probably by now already, uh, be the other way around. We will forever have enough uh, jobs, but we will not have enough workers. And that means that we need to change every industry. Um, that's what I started uh, this narrative with, is that we need to become more efficient in the way that we do our, um, that we run our industries. Agriculture is probably um, a couple of steps ahead of other industries because you ran out of workers, geographically speaking, because uh, agricultural towns lost uh, their young uh, population to towns. And so farms had to become uh, more innovative. They had to use smarter technology, better machinery in order to get higher yields uh, out of the same kind of land with fewer hands uh, on, on deck. Um, so that's that's good. But we're now seeing this with all other industries. Um, in five years' time, is there any kind of plausible scenario where a big sporting stadium like the MCG um, will have humans checking your ticket? That's a laughable idea. That will be automated. At halftime uh, at the MCG, um, your beer will not be poured by a human. That's also a, a, a horrendous uh, idea even to, 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 to ponder this. We will automate wherever we can. We will try to find efficiencies in every industry. And we need this um, because we run out of workers and because um, there are certain kind of industries that can't be automated and that have a massive, massive demand for future workers. What I mean by this is particularly the healthcare sector and education to a degree. Um, at the moment in Australia, we have 550,000 um, people over the age of 85. I am very obsessed with the number of Australians aged over the age of 85 uh, because once you hit 85 or the total population over the age of 85, half of them require um, severe care, meaning they need uh, help with everyday activities. Obviously, it is expensive for a country to grow old, but it is also very, very labor intensive for a country to grow old. And we see this in healthcare. 40 years ago, 1982, 8% of the Australian workforce was dedicated um, to healthcare and social assistance, 8%. By now, in 2022, that is 15%. By now, 2 million out of our 13 million workers are dedicated to healthcare and social services. In only 13 years, not a long time, 2035, we will have more than 1 million Australians in the 85 plus bracket. That means we need to dedicate an even larger chunk of our workforce to healthcare and social assistance. If this, this sector will ever be automated, it will be the last sector to be automated. So we can't really bet on, you know, just uh, friendly little robots taking care of our elderly. That's... Uh, that's very futuristic and nonsensical talk at this point. So we need to um, dedicate the workers that we have um, 
to the healthcare sector. And we need to get them from any sector, from anywhere we can. This is why all sectors need to automate in order to make sure that we have enough healthcare workers. And the same is the case if you followed recent news stories about education, where we're running out of teachers and we increasingly realize um, that we have very, very high demands from our schools because lots of the education that was used to be taking place within the family unit is now being handballed to schools um, because both parents work. Um, that just means there is less uh, parental time available to educate kids. And so that means the school needs to do more education per kid, um, which means we need better uh, workers. And of course, this is not a overly well-paying industry education. So it's hard to attract people that could easily get much more money elsewhere. Um, so these are a couple of the major changes in terms of how do we need to restructure our industries. Uh, once again, though, I hope I'm not sounding too pessimistic here uh, because, and I'm looking at, at agriculture here, we've seen case studies of how we get more productive within an industry, even though there are big population challenges facing this, this industry. And every one of your, uh, your listeners today would, would attest to that. They, they've seen, uh, you know, difficulties with hiring staff, with attracting staff um, to the regions. But I think most regional towns have a really um, attractive thing to offer to the workforces that might want to come there. And that is uh, lifestyle. It is the affordable, uh, it's affordable family-sized homes, which are, of course, freakishly expensive everywhere. They are now also freakishly expensive in regional Australia. Uh, and rural Australia, but that's only the case because we haven't built enough stuff. So land isn't outrageously expensive. Um, most regional and rural governments, local governments, should be able to make enough land available. If you are a big landholder and you want more staff, you have at least the possibility to build housing on your um, on your own property. So that's a that's an that's an option that some players have. Not everyone, but some have that. Um, and then it's just a matter of building housing. That, of course, comes at a cost. But you know, if you sit down with a good accountant, uh, you can see you you can you can work these things out. And so you have a really attractive offering to make to future staff, people that actually say, "Well, do I want to live in the city?" Plenty of people do, but not everyone. Um, and so I'm thinking you can make a very good case to future workers uh, to work in the agricultural space, particularly now that I think there has been a shift in, in the public perception of agriculture. Of This is now well recognized that this is increasingly a highly skilled and highly uh, technical uh, job. You need to operate very complex machinery. Um, any kind of tractor today looks very different from a tractor 50 years ago. You know, we're talking about um, you know spaceship technology uh, that that does the harvests and and drone technology. So there is um, you know there's quite a bit of um, attractiveness I think in there for the technically minded but also nature loving uh, young Australians out there. Simon, you've got such a, a practical view and it's amazing to just listen to you take a global context and, and map it back right down to impact on small towns and even individual farms. So thank you for that. Just, just picking up on your comments around employment and migration and citizenship and that impact that COVID had on um, us perhaps not attracting those overseas workers, can you just give us that picture of um, population growth in Australia and what you predict over the next five and 10 years and what that might mean for regional cities, regional towns and employment in our regional areas? Oh, absolutely. And a very, very good point. Um, so the way that we view Australia in 10 years time changed because of COVID. Um, because during COVID, uh, if you remember the very first couple of articles that were being published at the first lockdown, they made jokes about the up and coming Corona baby boom in nine months time. That never occurred because we had other things to think about in lockdowns than uh, procreation. So what we really did is we had fewer kids rather than more. 
And that's not a surprise to anyone dealing with population data a lot, um, because in times of historic pandemics, in times of um, historic economic uh, times of uncertainty, you always have fewer rather than more births. So there'll be fewer kids. Also, we took in fewer migrants. Migrants, uh, so if you miss out on two years of migrant intake, this is two years of losing population, um, future population that is meant to be between 18 and 39 years of age. Uh, that window, 18 to 39, makes up 80% of all migration into the country. So we're missing out on those folks. And if you then fast forward to the start of the 2030s, you, you see, well, we're still a growth country. Before the pandemic, we thought we would add 4 million people to the Australian continent by 2030. Now we're only adding 3 million people. That's fine. It's still growth. Still a lot of growth. Still a lot of new workers that are coming online, new markets to sell into. That's still positive. But because we take out, um, you know, those 1 million people that we take out of future Australia, we're not taking them out evenly across the full age spectrum from 1 to 100. We're only taking them out of certain pockets. So we are missing out on growth 0 to 12-year-olds. So there will be essentially the same number of kids in 2030 than before the pandemic. So that's not a big fat growth market. So if you were hoping uh, to sell, uh, you know, um, pencils and school uniforms at, at higher numbers, that's not occurring. We will still see a lot of growth in the young adult 15 to 24 market. There's still a lot of growth. That is funnily enough, a pocket, if you look in the near future, that wasn't impacted at all. So that's a good, healthy sector to tap into. And why it's so important for agriculture you might realize once you look at the next age bracket, people in their mid-20s to early 30s. These are, um, this was a big growth sector over the last 10 years when the millennials, the biggest generation, was in this age bracket. Then we saw a lot of growth there. But now the millennials are leaving this age bracket behind. We're missing out on migration in the mid-20s to early 30s. And for many businesses, that's part of their workforce. Many businesses um, recruit, particularly big companies, recruit their um, graduate level intake every year from that age bracket. And they will be the same number of folks available in 2030 than in 2020. That means that there will be massive competition for your workforce 25 to early 30s. So if these are the workers that you're competing for, you need to be willing to take some money, <laughs> additional money and put it on the table. Otherwise, you cannot get them. So if that is your issue and you say, well, I can't just pay those people more money, then I'm encouraging organizations, businesses to look at the younger workers. Get workers younger than you might feel comfortable with, um, train them up, skill them up, but then show them a pathway into the future. Paint them their future life in your organization and your business uh, and make sure that you know, don't don't just promise lies or something, but make sure if you work uh, accordingly, you know, work hard enough in three years, that's where you can be. In five years, that's where you can be. In 10 years, here is where you can be. So to really show them a all of career pathway, that allows them to actually take you seriously, to trust you, and to then make decisions around, okay, am I investing into this town, into this regional area, or wherever, wherever you live? and that's the workforce that's available. It's cheaper. Um, but again, those young workers, um, they enter the workforce at a time of record low unemployment. So they also can charge reasonably high fees, but they are cheaper uh, than people in their mid-20s, late uh, mid-20s and early 30s. And most importantly, they are available. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would um, focus on. Tom, so if I can just speak to that, I'd it's really useful to understand that over the last few years, we haven't um, had that immigration of the 18 to 39 year olds. And I think so many large employers and smaller employees, employers in agriculture are really feeling that on the, on the meatworks floor or, um, you know, in the processing plant for an agribusiness or whatever. I really like the fact that you're encouraging us to think about recruiting that younger age group and giving them a career ladder. I think about companies like KPMG, who you used to work for, Simon. Those companies and all accounting firms and law firms of any scale are, are really, their success is on the back of having a career ladder 
and allowing that analyst or that graduate to become a junior analyst and then a senior analyst and then a junior consultant and then a senior consultant and then a junior director and a director. And those companies wouldn't be as big as they are without that career ladder. And I think young people and everyone in their careers, they want a ladder to climb. And if you don't give them a ladder to climb in your business, in particular, a small farm, um, they're going to find another ladder to climb. So to those listening, and just to pick up on Simon's point, those young people on your farm now and those young people that you want to attract onto your farm to help you fill that like labour gap, what's their career path and what's the ladder with you that they can climb that is compelling enough for them to stay with you? Because once we get them, we've got to have that model or that career pathway to keep them. And as business owners, I think that's back on us to achieve. Oh, absolutely. That's such an important um, message uh, to really, you know, instill in the minds of, of, of business owners that you want to think ahead because the skills shortage will not get better. So you might go, oh, surely there was just an annoying COVID thing uh, and this will blow over. And eventually things will get better. This structurally speaking, things might well get worse. So you need to proactively um, find your workers. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm talking to all kinds of interesting uh, industries in the hosp uh, well, hospitality or tourism business where they can't find workers because they live in Byron Bay uh, and this housing is freakishly expensive. So why would the young, low-skilled workers move there if they mm -hmm. can't have housing? But so those folks add housing onto their onto their properties and they say, well, we pay you not all that much money, but we give you super cheap rent. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, you have enough money to live uh, in, in paradise, Byron Bay for a little bit, uh, go surfing, go drinking, do drugs, work a bit. That's all that people want there. That's fine. That's a model that works for them. Now, offer the same minus the drugs and uh, you have a wonderful, legally successful business model. Yeah, I think, yeah, we can acknowledge that there is a shortage of workers out there, but if we use that as an excuse, we're not going to grow our farm businesses or agribusinesses. What's important is the value proposition that is unique to us that other farmers in our region or area or, or even broader are not offering. We've got to stand out as employers. There are farms in your area, for those listening, that don't have a problem finding talent. Um, and all it is is that their value proposition to potential employees is stronger than yours and they're being more proactive in how they're going about solving their workforce problems. So I guess I'm just suggesting don't use the workforce shortage as an excuse for not going out and proactively finding people. Yeah. And Simon, great comment. Just, just to pick up on a few things you touched on before, for those workers and, and for all of us, we're all seeing fuel prices, fertilizer prices, chemical prices. Um, you touched on inflation, um, and we've seen a significant jump in that. What I'm hearing in your comments is that that's the new norm, um, and it's going to continue. I sort of feel like inflation hasn't done anything for 10 or 15 years plus, and now we've just seen a correction. Would you mind just commenting on inflation and its impact on cost of living for the younger generation and for all of us and what that means? Yeah. So inflation is just a stupid technical word. I don't like it. Let's just think through why things are getting more expensive. And that's essentially what inflation is, that you have more money, uh, you know, a higher money value around, things cost more. And so it's just incredibly hard to uh, pay for stuff. So if you think about wages, that's a simple example. Now you have... Um, no workers around. Workers are, are lacking. So you see companies paying um, junior uh, consultants $100,000, whereas three years ago, they would have paid them $70,000. So what happens then is that the workers that were hired three years ago that are not on $100,000 yet, they go, dude, I'm three years more experienced than this fella. I need to pay more money. So everyone asks for more money. So all of a sudden, we start paying people uh, more money uh, or not. And if we don't pay them more money, people change jobs. Then we need to hire people for more money because there are fewer people around. And so wages go up. But we've seen recently that wages haven't gone up as much as they could have, largely because Australians are not playing this jumping the ship game as much as we could. Um, 
So either this speaks to the loyal nature of Australian workers, or it suggests that there is a, a future risk that this might occur. So wages will go up more. That's that's one element. Then let's think through why costs are going up. Well, we import stuff from overseas. Um, one little data set that I like to monitor on a weekly basis is the Global Shipping Cost Index. And that's an index that roughly estimates how much uh, a shipping container costs. You know, those big container ships take up to uh, 20, 40,000 uh, containers. They, they're huge, huge ships. And a container before the pandemic cost around $1,300. Um, in the middle of the pandemic, when things were really expensive, it was seven times the cost at $11,000. We're now down to $6,000, which is not as bad as things once were, but it is still five times more uh, expensive uh, than the way it used to be. So that makes sense that then everything that we buy in Australia gets more expensive uh, because you have more shipping costs. On top of this, you have more fuel costs. Uh, on top of this, you have higher labor costs. So everything gets more expensive. Uh, and that's a problem. At the moment, we haven't seen much impact of this in Australia yet. Um, and that is, you know, if you listen to The Economist, that is due to a thing called the wealth effect. And the wealth effect is a fun little thing where um, when you feel richer, you spend more money. So what happened in Australia is that house prices went up and many, many people own a house. So all those folks that own a house are now on paper, they were richer by two, three hundred thousand dollars quite easily. And so you feel richer. So you spend more money on eating out, on buying stuff online and on buying a nice car, whatever. So you acted richer than you actually are because the, you don't actually have the money of the house. You know, this is just the potential of, of wealth uh, if you were to sell your house. Um, but that kept the economy moving along. And this is why lots and lots of people are nervous about low house costs. You know, the young people, of course, are not worried about housing costs falling because they go, when, where is this promised market crash of, uh, you know, 20, 40, 50% so that I can finally afford a house? Um, that's why people are nervous because falling house prices might well mean that we spend less money, that we are more careful, uh, that we are saving more, that we're not, you know, throwing money around. And that's what you want. In Australia, we want as many people as possible throwing money around. And the good news, demographically speaking, here is that by sheer demographic dumb luck, throughout the 2020s, we have the biggest population cohort, the millennials, moving into the highest spending phase of the life cycle, the 40s. So in the 40s, you already had a couple of promotions. So you have high income. Um, you have 1.7 kids that need uniforms, uh, school uniforms, cricket bats. They eat a lot. You have a big fat mortgage. Uh, your fridge breaks. So you constantly have costs. Every penny that a that people in their 40s earn goes straight out the door back into the economy. It's annoying for the 40-year-olds or 40-somethings, uh, but it is great news for the economy. So that will probably act as a buffer in Australia, meaning that we will still be willing to spend money or not willing, we will spend money because we're kind of forced to because we have so many people in their um, 40s. So that's my very, um, you know, wide um, narrative about um, rising costs of living and uh, inflation. Hope that kind of sort of answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. It does. And it just makes me think you mentioned strong business model at the outset. And we've talked about a whole lot of the constructs around um, workforce and cost of living. What's your take on the gross indebtedness um, of our nation that supports that business model, if you like, that we've taken on as a result of COVID? Do you have any concern or should we have concern about the level of debt that we carry as a country now? Yeah, see, that's where, uh, as a humble demographer, I'm moving into the realms of economics, and I'm always confused about this. Um, because, you know, if I, as my little household, was to run up endless debt, I'd be very concerned. Uh, but as a country, that's apparently not all that much of a problem. We can still create wealth, we can still fund stuff. Um, you know, and then that's where you get into the talks of new monetary uh, theory, where people go, oh, oh, how can we actually change this? Is debt a real thing? Do we need to worry about that? All that I'm really concerned about is, is that we have enough people in the country who buy enough stuff and who build enough stuff. And as long as we're building enough stuff, 
that's important because that drives up um, GDP. That means we have a good credit ranking. That means money keeps uh, flowing in the country. So that's my rough outlook. And structurally speaking, if you look at this as a global system, we are one of, I think, six countries that have enough energy and enough food in the country to feed and uh, energize everyone uh, and still have plenty left over to export. So it's a very rare situation to find yourself in this. Whatever goes wrong, we have enough on, of the basics. That's that's good. The one thing that we are always at risk of is mismanaging water. So that's where you guys <laughs> come in as well, you know, as, as, as being part of the system to, to manage this. Um, but overall, we got the basics covered uh, and not all countries do. And um, if we are shut out of the world, um, that's very annoying, uh, but we just get a bit poorer, but we kind of will be able to, to get along. If China gets shut off the world, they import food, they import energy, millions, hundreds of millions of people starve within a year or two. So, there are people that are much more dependent uh, on the world functioning uh, like clockwork than we are. Um, and China is always the prime example of, of a country that I'm very concerned about um, because things could go wrong and then millions of people could suffer. Um, if you look at this from a sheerly egotistical um, Australian perspective, that's good for us because China will always treat us well enough so that we sell them stuff. They will never invade Australia. Nobody should ever think about this. It's much too costly and too annoying. If you were to invade Australia, you'd need to secure mines, you'd need to secure fields and then do agriculture. It's heaps cheaper to just buy our stuff. They will always do this, but China will forever onwards um, slap our wrist occasionally. You know, they'll say, we don't buy lobsters, we don't buy this or that, no international students, they'll make visas more difficult or something like this, because they need to show who's boss. And they need to be in a strong negotiating position. And that's how they um, achieve this, because they're actually in an incredibly weak position, globally speaking. Because once trade slows down, their people die. And once people die and starve, the power of the Communist Party falls apart. Um, and they can't rule the country anymore. So. We are helping. Uh, we are helping China to tick along. Um, that's positive, regardless of how much money uh, we make or how much our finances are, are worth. I really appreciate that perspective on China, and I think you've just spoken to a fear that many Australians have. Um, so thank you for that. So with everything that is happening in the world, and it is quite incredible times, isn't it? You know, COVID. Ukraine, Russia, now America, Taiwan, China. Um, there is so much going on. Are we, in fact, the lucky country, as we've always sort of coined the phrase, if you like, the lucky country? Do you feel like we are that at the moment or has something changed in relation to that? No, I, I, I think so. I think in a world where people can freely choose where they want to live, we have a very, very good offering. A rich country, there are only so many rich countries. A rich country that's also a democracy, well, once again, you kick out a couple of countries of this list. Um, then people want to move into a lifestyle destination. That is what Australia is um, obsessing about, is, is, is offering. We are a country, despite throughout COVID, uh, our lifestyle spending went up and up. Um, you know, COVID hit, we spent more money on... Uh, on on foods, we spent more money on uh, decorating our homes. Our furniture sales go up. Our our uh, Bunnings had an excellent pandemic. Um, so all all of this is working really well um, in in the favor of Australia. So I don't see uh, the negative um, story there. You know, we have a couple of diplomatic challenges as a country, uh, meaning we need to well, you know we need to not piss off America while not pissing off China. And so we will always be um, um, put back into line by both superpowers. But Australia has a strong tradition uh, of, you know, being aligned with the greatest global superpower at the time and then kind of, you know, slithering uh, through this. So we will continue um, to do this. And I'm very much of the opinion that even if you have a very, very pessimistic world of the view, a uh, view of the world, um, then Australia's position is actually a benefit. In the 1960s, Jeffrey Blaney wrote about the tyranny of distance. 
that is that is hurting Australia, that we are too far away from all the good, positive goings on in the world. And every now and then you will people here complain about, so if I was to live in Europe, I could just easily jet to Paris. I could jet to Rome within two hours. It'd be wonderful. I could be everywhere. And here in Australia, I'm, I'm stuck uh, in my farm and I have nowhere to go. Well, fair enough. That's the um, I want to be everywhere kind of narrative. But if you have a pessimistic view of the world, the uh, the tiring of distance becomes a, a helpful moat that keeps all the troubles away from Australia. So it's a sense, a, a hedging of bets uh, that, that we have here. So we are, I would say, really well positioned um, to weather the storm that is the 2020s, that is the 2030s, where we are seeing a permanent shift of uh, of demographic good fortunes, um, where by, by 2031, um, the last baby boomer will be of retirement age. So that means you have the, the biggest uh, population cohort that ever was, uh, globally speaking, moving out of the workforce into retirement. And then you have the skills shortage that just that's just built in or baked into the demographic uh, setup occurring. And global competition for workers will occur. We are well positioned to do this. On top of this, uh, we were smart enough in the 90s to start the superannuation scheme, which is the best hedge against an aging population that you could imagine. Superannuation says we put a gun to your head and you put 10% of your money, of your income into a bucket. That's your bucket. And by the end of your working career, um, you will have enough money in your bucket to pay for your own retirement. It sounds so simple and it is so simple, but countries um, like Germany, where I'm from, they operate differently. Um, they force you to put a bit of money in one bucket. There's one bucket for everyone. And all of a sudden, um, and then they had the issue of, uh, you know, taking in Eastern Germany when Germany reunited, so there were additional people moving into the system. But even without this, you have a big chunk of the population retiring and they demand a big retirement. They demand, uh, they demand a big pension and they have an ever shrinking workforce of younger people kind of supposed to fill the bucket up and that won't work. Mm. So it's a terrible um, system and that will lead to political unrest because once you have to cut pensions as a you know as just a realistic uh, politician um the old people will vote for fringe ideas mm -hmm. and then you have the political um you know stability of a country at risk that we avoid in australia we'll still have crazy politicians don't worry about this uh, but overall we don't have the structural um issues baked into the system because we put superannuation into place there are a couple of issues with the superannuation system, but overall, this is uh, securing the wealth um, of the country, even in a world that is aging, which was very prudent to put into place 30 years ago. We will be forever in the debt uh, of the politicians that dreamt up that scheme. Yeah, great comment. Um, do you see our migration policy changing? If there is a, a workforce shortage, and that might be a global problem, why not let 360,000 people a year become citizens of Australia rather than just 180? And would that have an effect? Um, it, it would help because we desperately need workers and all industries are crying out for workers. So we, we can take in more workers um, and we should probably. The question is, will they come? It's not that, uh, you know, it's not baked into the future that this can work forever and ever. At the moment, um, we're asking a lot from our migrants. We're asking them to pay a lot of money to come here. We can't be doing this into the future. Canada already picked up on this. They are ahead of us in viewing the, the future demographic challenges. They are handing out citizenships to their international students in particular, like candy. That's what we need to do. Because the 2020s might well be the last decade where we can get free migrants. Mm -hmm. Um so or, or the migrants actually pay for us to come here. In the future, um, we will well pay um, 100,000 bucks or more per migrant through tax credits over a decade or two um, to them uh, to, to settle here. That said, that whole scenario that I described then just describes or assumes uh, that migrants will be allowed to come to Australia. Who says that the, that the source country of migration, Germany in my case, is happy germany paid for for my birth for my kindergarten for my schooling for my university for broken arms in between um it was expensive to have me reach the age of 22 or, or thereabouts and then i left that's not a good deal for germany 
It's a ridiculously good deal for Australia, economically speaking. Who says that in a world of ever-shrinking workforces, that Germany would have let me go? We might well see something emerge like, if you think of the Premier League, uh, like a transfer system, where you say, yeah, 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 of course, Simon can go uh, to, to Australia, but you pay us. You pay us handsomely because we invested blah, blah, blah dollars into his upbringing. We want this and a bit of extra. Um, so there is a scenario where we can't get that many migrants in, even if those migrants wanted to come. You know, it's it's on everyone's guess how likely that is, or will there be essentially something like free trade zones, but for migrants within certain kind of nations that can freely trade populations. Uh, Australia and New Zealand have this, and Australia and New Zealand will continue to have this. Um, so, but we might go, ah, is there a couple of other countries that go into this free movement of populations or not? So the global employment super league. There you go. Ah. <laughs> you would have thought. That's fascinating to hear. Hey, um, changing gears, when you spoke to our members at our recent conference, you talked about what communities can do and what individuals within small communities can do to reinvigorate and even transform small towns to make them more attractive for people to live in and, and come to. Um, and you also sport, spoke to the importance of sport in country towns. And that really resonated with me and I know so many. Would you mind just giving our farmers who are very invested in the success of their small country town your insights around what they can do to rally community and make their towns more attractive for future employers? Yeah, so oh, absolutely. Great, great and very important point here. Um, so... The Australian workforce is developing in a way where we are creating more and more high-income workers and more and more low-income workers, and we're eroding away the middle class. So we don't have a middle class that acts as social glue. We also become more and more atheistic, so we take away religion as, an, uh, as a potential for social glue. So the last bastion of social glue that we have is sports. So we mustn't underestimate the power of sports in Australia. And I think few Australians are at the risk of underestimating sports. Um, but I mean, spectator sports, you know, loving and hating the same teams, uh, as well as active sports participations, particularly in uh, the smaller the town, the more important the sporting clubs become, because they, this is where uh, rich and poor, young and old meet. This is the, the real town center uh, that creates social glue. So you know, pumping up your local sporting club as much as you can does, of course, help the community to be socially cohesive, but it also keeps the whole town functioning as a, as a socially healthy unit. And it is what adds life to a country town. The risk of a shrinking town is always that once a town falls below a certain population base, the local grocer, the local IGA can't keep open anymore. They don't have the numbers anymore, so they close. Um, then once the town shrinks further, um, the local footy team has to merge with the evil footy team down the road. Uh, and once again, that slowly sucks out um, the lifeblood of a town. So you want to counter this first and foremost by ensuring that you make housing available and uh and affordable in the town for people to come. And then you want to strengthen the local sporting culture, which of course is also linked to population. If you don't have enough people to staff, uh, the, uh, to man the footy team, you don't have a footy team. Uh, and then you don't have an event uh, that people can gather around. Um, so that's that's an important um, narrative. Please make sure that you get your sports um, your sports right um, in in country towns. And that's mo what most people want. If you ask people what they want in their lives, they want a decent job that pays well enough, that doesn't mistreat them. Uh, then they want to spend as much time with their families. And then on top of this, they have very simple desires, you know, play a bit of sports, go fishing, the occasional trip here and there. That's all that people want. Really, the desires are overly simplistic. And you can make this you can make this happen, but sometimes it takes an all of community um, approach. And I'm thinking about this from a housing perspective. Let's say you live in a regional town where enough employers could potentially hire more staff. 
but you don't have enough housing available and therefore you can't attract new workers to your town. Um, so what do you do? Well, maybe you can provide housing. Maybe you're not a big enough player to build a dwelling for people, but maybe um, this is really meant to be an all-of-community approach where different employers band together and build housing for low-income workers. You know, that's the kind of uh, lengths and st- uh, that I want you to go through in order to rethink how you can um, enliven your towns. Please stop thinking about farmers next door or other businesses in your town as competition. Um, in a world where we are completely running out of workers, um, yes, there are potentially people that nick your workers, but we are we need to run efficiencies wherever we can. So I think this is not the time to think in terms of competition. This is the times. Uh, this is times to think in times of collaboration. How can different farms work together to, um, you know, share machinery, um, workers, and knowledge, and maybe systems as well, so that you can drive the efficiencies. And overall, the whole region, the whole town uh, will benefit if you get these things right. Simon, I think you've touched on an incredibly important point. But what's amazing about, about what you've said is that, you know, you're helping individuals within small country towns actually take personal responsibility for their contribution to the local town. I think so often we sit back frustrated by our local councils and frustrated by the things that aren't happening in our towns and we expect it to be someone else's responsibility. I I love the fact that, you know, as farmers, many of us have strong balance sheets compared to a lot of others and a lot of us might be looking to invest in real estate or shares you know, outside of our town, I sort of would like to encourage farmers to stop and think about the contribution that they can make over and above what they're already doing to their local villages. Um, you know, we can all play a role in local sport. We can probably all find ways to improve housing situations locally. We can probably all think about ways that we can make our streets and our main street more beautiful. Um And those things all add up to look at each of us as entrepreneurs and as business owners, what we can be doing to contribute back into the vibrancy of our local villages. Let's not leave it up to the establishment because the establishment won't get us done for us. And and linking back to a comment you made before, um, I proved with a mate the other day, we were sitting around with a pen and paper in a pub in Sydney, that his he could relocate to a small country town, live in a bigger house, um, still send his kids away to private school, but his salary could reduce by nearly half and he would still be better off. Yeah. You know, the costs of living in the city are so significant for, um, you know, our cousins who are in town in their corporate jobs, but they can come to country towns, perhaps have a better lifestyle and live more cheaply and, as you say, bigger house and and probably a different way of living. If we make our villages more beautiful, you know, there is absolutely that demographic shift to to country living. And I think that is is something that we can all have a really significant contribution to. Oh, absolutely. That I love the point about the financial uh, scenario uh, with, with Sydney. Um, globally speaking, uh, if, you, if you look at Sydney, it's a ridiculous city. Um, there's a group called Demographia in, in New York, and they calculate um, how expensive housing markets are by just seeing how many median incomes, median household incomes, the median house costs. And they say once the median house costs five times the annual income, the market is classified as severely unaffordable. Five times. In Sydney, that ratio is 15 times. Wow. Um, so that we're not we're, in Sydney, we're nowhere even near being unaffordable. <laughs> you know, unaffordable is a dream. Um, so that's and in Melbourne, it's 12, and then the rest of the big cities is about nine to ten. Um, but that's that's ridiculous. So that there's a problem. And if you can find a way to offer, you know, housing at a much lower rate like this. It works for certain people, not mm. for everyone. Certain people will want to live uh, in a city for whatever reasons. That's that's cool. Uh, but, you know, we are the most urbanized country in the world. We have two-thirds of our entire population living in just five cities. There's no other country in the world that comes close to that ratio. Uh, the geography of the country dictates this to a certain degree. But 
we can soften this a lot. And during COVID, we've seen this. During COVID, we've seen people leave the inner city uh, and and move to to regional towns. You know, not not the country country, but everything within a let's call it two hour radius of the of the big cities was very very attractive, uh, and that will continue. So you can probably benefit from this. You can you can you know push uh, for this to occur in your town by making sure that the local council makes enough land available for housing. Then to make sure that there is a local developer that can provide housing at scale. And if there's no local developer, you live in a sizable country town, well, there's a big fat business opportunity for you right there. But you also mentioned uh, the main streets, and that's one of my um, big pet projects is that if you go through your local main street right now, you will probably see empty shop fronts. And every empty shop front is nothing short of a catastrophe. No main street should have an empty shop front. That is what sucks the lifeblood out of a town as well. Uh, that's what makes the main street less magnetic. Every little shop act, acts uh, as a little magnet to draw more people into the city center. So if there is an empty shop front, um, that happens for one of two reasons. The first one being, um, you know, somebody owns the shop and uh, they offer, they charge a fair rent, but the businesses that go in there are just uh, unsuccessful businesses that offer stuff that isn't in demand. And so the shops go broke. Uh, the other, in, in many towns, this is the more frequent reason, um, the shop goes, uh, the shop, there is no real interest in putting a shop in there because it sits on the balance sheet of a big uh, fund and they can negative gear if they have no rental income and they are being judged or their fund is being assessed against the real estate value. So as long as property costs go up, which it might well be in a country, in a country town where there is shortage of everything. So uh, then there is a structure issue why the shop is closing. That's a loophole that you will want to close. This is a loophole where you will want to um, talk to your local members that this needs to be closed because that is a, um, you know, a structural issue that sucks the lifeblood out of your town. And it's not even the fault of any business. If this is uh, a shop where you can have, you know, where you can argue somebody should go in, then you need to be creative as a community and make sure that those shops are filled with stuff that add a bit of magnetism. This could be anything from, you know, building an indoor playground. I don't know an indoor dog park, uh, a, a pop-up uh, government thing where pop-up services are being provided. This could be a, a ballpark, you know, a ball pit like at Ikea, just put in a hundred thousand rubber balls. I don't know. Do something um, that is maybe Instagrammable, that attracts people to the town, that is quirky, that is funny, local arts, uh, whatever. It doesn't matter, but you want to be thinking about the main street and there will be a local main street association in your town have those guys work together to come up with something that fills this this fills this space um because that again will probably put your town on the map as well and we've seen this in in victoria with the with the silo art uh, that's something that seems a bit off works actually extreme can work extremely well in attracting people just because you are new and people are very very keen to see new stuff to experience new stuff simon for for someone who consults to companies like google and news corp and so many other great global and australian companies what amazes me about you is how you can have a global perspective and be across so many global issues but then relate that back to what it means for australia um, for regional cities, for country towns, and for individual farmers and individual workers. Um, it's quite incredible what you do. I'm very grateful for the contribution you made to our recent conference. It's always wonderful to catch up with you. And thank you so much for the thousands of insights you've just shared in this <laughs> last hour um, and the way in which you make it so um, clear and concise and attainable for all of us, both workers and farmers. So thank you so much for your time today, Simon. It's it's always wonderful to, to connect with you. Uh, thanks for having me. It's been a great fun. Thanks so much. Simon, have you got a final comment for farmers to send us on our way? Well, I'd say you're in the right country and you're also in the right industry. Um, there is an industry that is ahead of the curve in terms of technology uptake. So don't let anyone you know talk to you about farming being an old-fashioned industry or anything. Um, you're way ahead of, of many industries. Um, so 
take this in stride? And uh, you're an industry that has throughout decades of uh, centuries uh, proven how to deal with difficulties. There have always been floods and fires and whatever. Um, and now other industries are all of a sudden disrupted in a way. You are ahead of this. The industries of Australia can learn a lot from farming. Um, so, you know, always make sure to chat with people outside your industry because you probably can help them more than they can help you at the moment. What a great way to finish. Thank you, Simon. Uh, thanks so much. And there you have it, ladies and gents. I said this at the end of Simon's presentation at our recent conference that finally I've found an entertaining German. Um, I find his view on the world and view on our nation and view on regional Australia and view on small towns and view on employment and what we can do to actually make a difference on our farm, with our employees, in our local towns, in our regions as farmers um, and the contribution we make as a nation to the global economy quite incredible. And um, as I mentioned, for him to have the empathy that he does for us as farmers and to be able to link how we can move forward to the global architecture, I think is quite unique. So always enjoy catching up with Simon. I hope you have enjoyed that and got something from it as much as I have in terms of how we employ and how we improve our local towns, the importance of local sport and how we grow what we grow and make a difference globally in the marketplace. I hope that's been interesting and insightful for you. And um, we'll look forward to touching base again in a couple of weeks. Thanks, guys. Take care and bye for now. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Profitable Farmer podcast by Farm Owners Academy. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a long-time listener, let your friends know about us or come continue the conversation in the Profitable Farmer Facebook group. All the best as you grow your business and create your freedom farm. Until next time, keep being incredible.